everybody, welcome. Uh, my name is Branson Parlor, and I'd like to welcome you to this sixth episode of the Kuiper Collective podcast. Uh, we are uh, enjoying getting the chance just to engage and interact and uh, share with you a little bit about uh, what we're doing, uh, what we're thinking, and uh, excited today uh, to welcome uh, Andrew Zwart. Uh, to the podcast. Great so, to be here. Andrew, welcome. Thank you. Uh, Andrew is uh, the director of the interdisciplinary program here at Kuiper uh, and very influential, gets to teach and interact with a number of students across the board. Uh, and so, uh, this summer we had the opportunity uh, to dig into a pretty big, big book, uh, which we're going to unpack, talk about a little bit here in a couple minutes. Uh, but I thought as a good warm up question, uh, I'd ask Andrew uh, to share maybe just one or two books that have been really influential in how you think. Um, because I was saying, uh, kind of before we started this, that yeah, I can see how this book that we've read has really, it's, it's going to be in the background for a lot of how I think and, and process things. And so I was just kind of yeah. curious, what's maybe one or two books that you've read that have been just very influential in your thinking? Yeah, uh, so that, that's a hard question because I, I read a lot of fiction and I want to go there, but that's a different story, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, so, but then when I think about nonfiction, because I think nonfiction does have the, uh, the ability to kind of set this whole framework, right, for your thinking. So two, two things that jump out at me right away when you ask the question would be, um, one, a book called The Language Instinct by Steven Pinker, um, who does a really nice job of sort of taking the reader through not just sort of what language is, but even how to think about language, um, even sort of how to think about difficult topics. So uh, how do you investigate um, you know, these, these difficult questions? Um, and, uh, and, and because I find his arguments, uh, for the most part, very compelling. So that's a book that uh, got me really interested in language and has stuck and has you know, sent me off in a bunch of different directions. So, so that would be one. Um, and, then, and then actually another, another one, not a book, but an article, uh, is um, Marilyn Robinson, who I know you oh, love, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, she's got, she had this short little article, I think it showed up in Harper's, it was something along the lines, I think the title was Onward Christian Liberals. And it was partly about politics, but it was actually about when she plays with the word liberal. And she actually investigates uh, these really hard questions around things like predestination and God's sovereignty. Mm. And when I read that, it really sort of changed the way I thought about uh, kind of the definition of what predestination and all that kind of stuff is. And. Uh, and so that's that's always kind of in the background when I'm thinking about these these difficult questions that books like this raise. Yeah, 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 yeah that's good. I think it's it's interesting to just be able to look at uh, you know our own life and development and think about how certain books or articles, like you mentioned, just yeah really stand as milestones. We we got this question actually during our week of welcome here with a freshman asking us questions. So oh, they yeah. had asked a similar question, and this is a little different. But I said another one uh, was the book Eating Animals. Uh, although it doesn't like it, it hasn't like provide the same kind of framework for my thinking. Like it literally changed my diet. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah. That's like a pretty powerful yes. rhetoric, right? Yeah, like, yeah. So I'm living my life differently. Yeah, you know, because of that. But how about you? Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's pretty big, because uh, it's yeah, especially what we eat. Right, it's easy to kind of know something, yeah, yeah. Uh, but a lot different to actually change change Our, those habits. Actions, yeah, yeah, so. yeah, that's good. Yeah, I mean, I would say. You know, one that, and maybe a couple that really stand out to me, um, uh, John Howard Yoder's The Politics of Jesus. Uh, I mean, that was really, again, for me, when I read that, 
probably as a junior or senior in college, that kind of set my trajectory for my graduate studies because I was like, okay, this is this is really interesting. This is a way of framing and understanding who Jesus is uh, that is that is very significant. That doesn't um, doesn't downplay uh, you know sort of the orthodox understanding of who Jesus is, biblical understanding of who Jesus is as fully human, fully divine, but in fact builds on that and really focuses on, you know, when Yoder talks about the politics of Jesus, it's, it's you know, recognizing that Jesus uh, grounds this new visible political community that we call the church. And so, you know, not, not the politics of Jesus as in, you know, Jesus is a Republican or Jesus is a Democrat, uh, but really trying to articulate this sort of deep way that the church is called to be different. So that in a lot of ways, you know, continues to flow throughout my life and teaching. And another one that I read like, just a couple of years after that, uh, N.T. writes, Jesus and the Victory of God. And um, you know, that's, again, a, a pretty massive book, but one that was just so helpful in, um, again, understanding who Jesus is and really digging in. Um, you know, N.T. writes somebody who sort of tries to meet especially modern critical scholarship on its own terms mm -hmm. but to say here's you know again here's why our understanding of who Jesus is uh, uh, you know as fully divine fully human but to really understand the the depths of who Jesus was in his life and death and resurrection um, yeah just really powerful something that sticks yeah, with you yeah, uh, yeah. so yeah so those are those are a couple for me um, and this one and this one, I mean, I think, you know, so, so this summer, so you came to me with this idea uh, and um, Mike McCarty as well to have kind of this book group around Charles Taylor's book, A Secular Age, which we've kind of toyed with, I don't know for how many years we've kind of mentioned this back and forth, like, oh, we should, we should have a, you know, actual reading accountability group because I was, it's, I was say, it's less a book club discussion <laughs> yeah. group and more an accountability yes, group. Yes, because it's, how many pages? I'm like looking it up here. It's, yeah, I mean, it's 700, it's like 700 and almost 780 pages um, just of text. That's not including the end notes. And, 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 and I don't know if I told you this already, but like this is literally the book that uh, got me to buy glasses. Oh, you know, yeah. Like, like Pushed reading, you over like, the edge. Like squinting at this tiny text. And <laughs> yeah. I'm like, all right, that's it. I need to go buy a pair of cheaters. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. So that's... about halfway through, I just gave up. Yeah. I gave up trying to read with my naked eyes. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> this is the book that did it. Pushed yeah. me over the edge. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, so at the beginning of, this, of last summer, uh, you you know, said, all right, let's actually do it. And and I said, you know, it's, it's about time. This book has been around for a little bit over oh, 10, 10 years. years and. Yeah. And so, you know, it's one of those books that you hear people reference. You know, I've read Jamie Smith's mm -hmm. summary of it, which is maybe helpful as a Cliff's Notes if you're going to start start yeah. an 800-page book to yeah. have some kind of orientation to that. Uh, and so, yeah, I would say I'm, you know, I'm I'm not quite done. You finished it, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And I'm still about a, a little over 100 pages out, uh, trying to still make a little bit of progress during the semester. Um, but I would say already it's been a a book that I can see how it's going to just stand in the background of uh, a lot of my a lot of my thinking, a lot of my teaching and writing, scholarship stuff, stuff like that. So, um, yeah, so I thought it'd be fun just to kind of unpack it a little bit and, and talk about what has uh, hit us and what stuck with us. And uh, again, I would encourage you. You know, I mean, if you're out there listening, it's. Uh, I mean, for for us as professors. I mean, there's not many opportunities to sit down and read a almost 800-page book, mm -hmm. and so, right, and I know we're not unique in that, right? It's not yeah, that people are like, yeah. "Oh, I'm going to pick up this 800-page book," but 
to me, just just the fact of like diving into something that that is deep, uh, it's complicated, uh, it takes work. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, but there's also like something refreshing about that. I, I was actually going to ask you, uh, so we can talk about the content, and obviously we got to get there, but even just about the experience of reading it, um, you know, because it's it's not something that like I don't normally just pick up. You know, a book this dense. Um, and and it's hard, as you said, it's it's real work. But boy, I, I don't know about you, but something about just the experience of, uh, of maybe even maybe it's just a sense of accomplishment. Yeah, <laughs> vain, we but did like, it. But we did it. Like, but but that there's something in the process of kind of like wrestling with these kind of difficult concepts and thinking through and then unpacking it together. Yeah, uh, that just felt really rich and really rewarding. Yeah. Um, so just, yeah. yeah, what was the experience like? I mean, there were. I'll, I'll be honest, there were. Nice where it's like, oh, okay, here we go. I don't yeah. know if I would feel like this. But then I would start reading and then I'd be like, no, this is good. This yeah. is good work to do. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think it was, I mean, for me, it was that refreshing sense of, you know, this is something that it does take work. And so you're putting in that time and effort. Uh, there are pieces that, you know, you don't get, you don't understand. And, you know, I think sometimes for our students, even there's humble, that, right? yeah, it keeps you humble yeah. uh, that, that, you know, there's this assumption that like, oh, if you're, if you're a professor, you kind of pick up anything and can run with it. And right. it's like, that's right. not true. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot to try to work through and try to process. Uh, but it was like, it, it's not just this sense of accomplishment, but it, to me, it really feels like you're building this, uh, this intellectual muscle yeah. Yeah. of being able to take something really big and, and stick with it and work at it and, and focus. Uh, and, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, reminds me of when I was working on my PhD where it's like, yeah, you would have to bite off some pretty big chunks of different topics or thinkers and you would just have to, to go deep to really try to wrap your mind around what are they talking about. Uh, and that's difficult, but it's also rewarding. I mean, I think it's, uh, I think it's similar to physical exercise where, um, I mean, people tell me, <laughs> people tell me that when you're like really in shape and you know, you work at something and there's a sense that, okay, it comes together and um, it's just, you know, it's a joy uh, to, to have, to, to be able to, you know, participate in a sport and do well or run your personal best time. And I think with something like that, there's a similar like, oh, this is something that's really valuable but as you said, it's not just the content; it's actually building yeah. that kind of that kind of skill, that kind of muscle, that kind of habit uh, of being able to do this and, and hard work. And to kind of participate in the conversation. This is obviously a, a, just a hugely influential book, and so there's there's just a feeling of all right, like you know, I can now as people talk about this, or you know, Mike was pointing out that I think that you know he's got a stack of like ten different books. That are in some ways responding to this book. Yeah. Uh, so it's nice to be able to say, yeah, I've actually read the source material, and I, I can be a part of that conversation as I'm reading other things and thinking about other things. And yeah. Teaching and. Yeah. 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 That's key. And so I think it was, yeah, for me something that I was I was hoping that I would see how this you know would impact how I look at things like ministry or how I you know teach in a variety of areas of content, and I I think it certainly yeah. has lived up to that expectation. So, well, let's dig into the content a little bit. So, you know, the title of this is Secular Age. Um, yeah, talk a little bit about, you know, how he kind of frames this and, and what he means by a secular age. And because I think a lot of people hear that and maybe, yeah, have a certain definition of what they think secular means. Right. Um, so, yeah, give us a sense for what he, 
Yeah, well, it's getting I, out I there. think probably like you, I'm, I'm going to guess here, Branson, but that like when I grew up, I think there was this very like uh, secular sacred distinction. right? Yeah. And so we were safely on this side of the line. <laughs> yeah. And then the rest of the world was like, you know, out there on the secular side of the line. And, yeah. And we wanted to keep that markation like, you know, really distinct. Right. And um, and he's talking about something very different, which is the notion that we all live, every single one of us, whatever our belief systems are, we're living in a sec secular age. Um, and the way he frames that is partly to say, um, and, and this might sound simplistic, but, but just the idea that um, unbelief is actually an option today. Mm. Um, and so part of the, the beauty of this book is, and part of the, the weight of this book is just the, the history, right? Um, yeah. He unpacks context upon context upon context, but he kind of calls it a story. And the story he's telling is, I think the question he keeps asking over and over is, how was it that 500 years ago, you essentially didn't have an option not to believe. Hmm. You you were religious in some sense, yeah. um, and that was the default. Uh, he's talking about Western society, so we yeah. have to draw that parameter. But he's saying the default was belief, um, and so then he asks this question: How, in just five hundred years, five hundred years later, is all of a sudden unbelief an option for people, um, and obviously a, a growing option, right? And so. I guess the way he would define secular is that we live in an age in a sense of choice, yeah. you know, um, which is a very different world uh, than one where, you know, uh, yeah, like I said, the default option was you had some sort of belief um, yeah. forever, and then he unpacks what those reasons are. Um, so I don't know, is that a good uh, kind of yeah. starting point? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's, that's, it's significant because I think, again, a lot of people, like you said, if you have this... Um, kind of religious versus secular idea. It's like, well, we're, we're not secular, but in the way that he's using it, again, it just reiterates we're all secular uh, in, in the sense that like, I mean, if you, you know, if you bring it home in a very practical way, it's like, you know, when I, uh, we get up on Sunday morning and our family's getting around, getting ready to go to church. Um, some families in our neighborhood are, and some aren't. And so, so there's not this sense of like, well, this is something everybody does. This is something everybody participates yeah. in. Yeah, you just do it without thinking. Right. There's this sense that like doing doing otherwise than you're doing is a real option. It's yeah. it's it's a live option. A live and option. and so you know, there, I actually talked about this in one of my classes just a little bit, but like I remember, um, so like thinking about even for us as believers, like partly he's saying where he uses this term haunted, right? Um, yeah. So we're kind of like haunted by doubt. And then he talks about the, the, the flip side, which is that, you know, unbelievers are haunted by the sacred in a sense. Yeah. And we can get into that. But I think one of the, you know, like just the idea that even as believers, doubt is a part of our lives. Doubt is an option. Yeah. Um, and that wasn't the case 500 years ago. And the way I kind of like, the example I give to my class is, um, I think about when I was like maybe six, seven years old, right? So I'd grown up in a Christian household, and I, and to be honest, like I was pretty naive, and I just sort of assumed that because everyone around me believed that that's just the way that everyone in the world, yeah, you know, worked. In fact, I yeah. had this the other day where where we were driving to church, and kind of what you said, and Ambi said, uh, I think he saw someone maybe walk down the sidewalk, and he asked this question, like. Why aren't they in church? Right? Yeah. I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I explained to a six-year-old. Yeah, that this is not like that. Actually, this is a unique kind of like you know thing. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Not everybody does this. Not everyone does this. So anyway, when I, when I was about seven or eight years old, I, I just have such a distinct memory of this of like a kid in my class saying that he didn't believe in God, and I was like, 
<laughs> floored. I was like, yeah. how, what? Like, yeah. how's that even possible? And it was disturbing to me. Yeah. Right? Um, and I think that was kind of the moment, maybe like, I obviously I couldn't articulate it, but like, where I had this like, re- really kind of gut level, like, oh, we're living in a secular age. And yeah. of course I would not have been able to you know, right. articulate that, but I think that's that's gets at yeah. what he's talking about. Yeah. Yeah, and the fact that in our, you know, when you experience that in that age, because our, our worlds at that way, in that way, are, in a sense, li- limited or bounded by, you know, people who have the same beliefs we do, yeah. uh, that, uh, you know, that, that part of what he's describing is this sense of a whole culture shifting where, again, 500 years ago, if somebody would have said that, yeah. the whole culture would have been aghast. Like, yeah. well, how could yeah. you say, how can you possibly say that? How yeah. can you possibly uh, believe that? But... You know, now we've moved to a point where somebody says that, and it's like, okay, well, that's okay for you, and if somebody else wants to disagree, then yeah. you know that's okay for them, yeah. and there's that kind of there's that kind of sense of a little bit of unease or this sense of haunting, like, well, like you mentioned, for both, yeah. that maybe the other is on to something that that we're not not quite not quite on to. Um, yeah, John, John Souk has this, this, uh, and I, I think this is, is his idea, or maybe he's part of this. I, I know he's read Taylor as well, but he has this whole thing about how, in a way, like our individual lives, to some degree, reflect the history too, right? So we, you know, as children, we have this kind of like complete childlike trust in belief. And then there's a period of kind of maturation where we have doubts and we have questions. And then for people who continue to believe, we call that a kind of more mature faith. Yeah because it's now owned in a sense, right? But it, but again, the point is it's owned within this broader secular context. Like we had to wrestle with these like these questions yeah. um, that, um, that 500 years ago, those questions just, we, we didn't need to wrestle with, or yeah. people didn't feel the need to wrestle with, right? So I think one, one of the things you brought up early was just the problem of evil. Yeah. And how Taylor, I mean, I thought this was fascinating, the way he says the problem of evil is kind of a modern, dilemma in yeah. a sense for Christians. Yeah. Yeah, that 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 I thought was a was a was an interesting insight because part of the way he tells the history is there's there's this movement from right because he the way he frames is how do you get from this kind of robust Christian faith in God as kind of taken for granted in a lot of places to what he calls exclusive humanism. Yeah, yeah where there's there's nothing beyond like human flourishing kind of as defined as a you know this worldly eminent flourishing is that that's the apex that's the ultimate goal that that we're aiming for uh and that that our society again in a lot of ways just takes it for granted that 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 that's a good thing um that that's something we should sort of seek for everybody in the culture and society and so part of his argument about how do we get from that from this kind of robust orthodox christian faith to exclusive humanism uh, is that you get these kind of shifts that happen along the way, and and one of those sort of the bridge point is this kind of providential deism. Yeah, right. Uh, and that's where I think this idea of the problem of evil uh, really sort of rears its head. Or he makes the case that the problem of evil, as we think about it, is a particularly modern problem. It's mm-hmm. not something that if you go back to, you know, uh, uh, obviously thinkers like Augustine, Aquinas, others wrestled with this. But the, the way that it's set up in the modern world is a bit different from how they, they would have thought about it. And so in his framework, there's this, in the, or in the framework of providential deism, there's sort of this, there's this understanding that God is this designer God who sets the world up 
for human flourishing so that you know things things happen for a purpose things happen for design um, and and really there's a sense that we with our human intellect can see and can understand that design we can make sense of it in the world uh, so that we can think God's thoughts after him as it were uh, but within that framework because of this sense that we can kind of see and know and understand God um, maybe in this more complete sense than historic orthodoxy would have said, uh, the problem of evil becomes this real problem. Because if God sets the world up for a place to be this place of human flourishing, um, how do we make sense of all the ways in which it seems to be a place of human suffering instead? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and especially when we take out, you know, if the end goal is this kind of human flourishing, things happening the way they're supposed to, um, yeah, how does suffering fit in that picture? Right. Um, yeah, it's the, the, the bit about, um, like you just mentioned, deism being a bridge, right? I yeah. Think that's, that's really fascinating, especially kind of like from, from perspectives. So like looking back, we're kind of like, I, I mean, I don't know if you agree with this, but like looking back, like it's really easy for us to be like, oh, deism was this sort of like, you know, where we, we kind of took all these like important aspects of God and kind of like, uh, like took them away. Right? Yeah. And so, so obviously we see this as this really kind of negative movement. But then at the time, I think for a lot of people, it was like, this is the way we save, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, like religion in a sense. Yeah. Know? And I think we, we talked about this before, like even Paley's, you know, he's really arguing for like, for like, he, he's saying, let me argue for why you, you should believe in God, a designer. Yeah. Right. Um, so he's he's got this idea that he's doing apologetics in a sense, but yeah. the apologetics end up in a in a sense kind of destroying. And I think one of the insights Taylor has is like, uh, so we often see like this movement towards secularism or secularity, like as this thing imposed from the outside, Enlightenment thinkers, atheists, right? And, and I think if I'm reading him correctly, he's saying like part of this was we did this to ourselves. Yeah. You know? um, and, and it's partly that Christians start to try and kind of play, I, I'm going to say this kind of metaphorically, but that we, we start to play the game like on the Enlightenment's terms instead of like, you know, on the terms that have always been important to Christians. Um, yeah. You know, uh, so like, like a foundational idea that we can't actually understand god's mind um but once we start to like play the game where we say oh well god's logical and we can figure this out then we're yeah. sort of ceding that territory yeah that yeah sense. yeah yeah i think it does and i and i think um you know right now i'm teaching this philosophy for understanding theology class that that kind of walks through the history of philosophy with this view toward theology and and we're kind of right at this point where exactly what you're happening or what you're describing uh, is happening where you have modern thinkers who would be, uh, you know, who would identify as Christian, like Descartes or John Locke. Uh, but they're, you know, and part of what's motivating them is this apologetic, like, how can we, you know, so they see that, like, not everybody is convinced uh, of the truth of, of, of Christianity, even, even in their era. Right. And they're saying, like, is there a way to convince people just, just on the basis of philosophical thought and reason um, that that's a bit of this shift, whereas again in thinkers like Augustine or Aquinas, you've got this model of faith-seeking understanding. Um, you know, when Anselm talks about arguments for God's existence, it's, it's couched in a prayer. Yeah. And so there's this this clear sense that this faith comes first, and then you do seek to know, seek to understand. 
Uh, but with some of these thinkers, Descartes and Locke, there's this subtle or maybe not so subtle shift that if we can just find a way to make the case for God that that almost people have to believe, they, they, they have to buy into because the force of the intellectual argument or the rational argument is so great that it, it brings people to that. But what ends up happening is that it's kind of backfire. I mean, long term, I think he was his backfires because there's these shifts again made by Christians in Christian thinking that says, you know, like John Locke will say, well, there are things that are according to reason or, or things that are above reason, but then there are things that are contrary to reason. Right, right. And these three categories end up getting basically conflated into two by later thinkers. So yeah. there are no longer things like the resurrection or the trinity that are above reason that we, that we can't really explain it's just well that's contrary to reason yeah. uh and so then judged at the bar of reason christian faith looks irrational so why would a good thinking intellectual person go go that route and so that's yeah, it's really this law of unintended consequences yeah. that taylor is pointing to i think so he you know i think one of the main themes right of this book is that we often look at, at uh, unbelief or the secular age as he he says this, the narrative that's being told is you know we just kind of we have these old beliefs and they're kind of um, almost superstitious and we strip those away and you know that's just you know a superstitious belief from the time and we strip that away and then what we end up left with is the truth right yeah and so one of his his main points is that actually uh this whole secular kind of framework is itself constructed um and then so i guess in, in like what we were just talking about is partly that we unwittingly helped construct that right? yeah but i'd love to hear you talk a, a little bit about you know, this notion that, yeah, secularity is a construction. It's not just sort of what's left after we, you know, strip away uh, these kind of older, you know, um, ancient beliefs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's one of his most um, interesting and, and compelling arguments uh, is this is this idea that it's, yeah, that what you have, it's, it's something very different from the narrative that's out there. And so I think about, you know, somebody who uh, is, you know, a very popular, maybe a little bit simplistic, but a popular thinker like Richard Dawkins, who, you know, was more popular 10 years ago, but but still, yeah, I just saw one of his, um, yeah, his latest books at Barnes & Noble, and it's entitled something like Growing Up, or, you know, kind of this narrative, yeah. and so what it fit, it's kind of this narrative of, um, you know, to quote the Apostle Paul, it's like, when I was a child, I, yeah. you know, partook of these childish things, like, you know, I had this superstitious belief in God, and, you know, I kind of you know, use faith as a crutch, and yeah, yeah these things that yeah. just seem um, that that in a way we sort of have this longing for. Um, I mean, one way that I think you see that is like every Christmas time. It's like there's we we kind of hold up this like childlike belief mm. in Christmas and the magic of Christmas, but but we all kind of know it's you know yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not really there. But but we still kind of like the magic, um, but it's but it's gone, and so this. So this subtraction narrative says, you know, basically we just got rid of that stuff, and then what was left is, you know, what we think of as the good, the modern individual who is, um, uh, you know, in essence, defining their view of what happiness looks like, what fulfillment looks like for them. Their freedom, their choice. Yeah, they're yeah. pursuing that, and we've we've sort of been freed from, you know, maybe the fetters of family or tradition or culture in the way the previous generations were sort of forced to live out these scripts. And so it's like, you know, the, the subtraction narrative is that, you know, now you're free to write whatever you script you want uh, to life without realizing that that script itself is 
again, has been constructed over right. centuries of people wrestling with this. And, and this is where yeah. I think part of Taylor's point is, you know, this is actually a pretty, you know, the way he frames it is like, this is a pretty amazing achievement right. because most cultures throughout time and history uh, have linked to something transcendent, whether whether that's God or whether that's, uh, you know, constructed maybe differently in Eastern religions sure. or philosophy. But there's, it seems like there's almost always been this idea of some kind of uh, transcendent God or transcendent idea or force that holds everything together. Whereas what we've done is we've constructed a a way of looking at the world that is is really totally this worldly. It's about human flourishing in this world, and it seems like, uh, at least on the surface, it seems like for a lot of people yeah. that's enough. That's all. Right, that's right, all right. you need. There's nothing beyond that. Yeah. Um, I thought I thought the story too, and and maybe this fits, or maybe this, you know, the story that you were telling about even how this is gets construed in modern theology, like your experience of kind of how that was framed, yeah. also kind of fits with that subtraction narrative yeah. and, and how that looks. Yeah, yeah, I think um, I, I so the, with this whole notion of like you scripts, right? Um, yeah, and I think about like I'm sure you've had this too, like conversations with people who grew up in the faith and left. And Taylor kind of talks about that as a kind of conversion, right? Yeah. So, like, I think that really captures this notion. Like, so, so we obviously have conversion stories, right? Like, people who maybe didn't grow up with the faith and had this moment of conversion, or, or even for people who grew up in the faith, usually there's some kind of moment of like really owning it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then uh, to think the other way, right? So, and again, the story is that, like, you know, someone who's been through that wouldn't necessarily call it a conversion story, but that's kind of what it is, right? Yeah. And, and what's fascinating is that those conversion stories do follow, like, a narrative. Yeah. And it's, and it's again, it's, a, the, pers it's the, the big cultural narrative, but, like, personalized, right? So it's, you know, I grew up and, you know, I used to believe in miracles and I used to believe in this. And then, but then I grew up and I, and that was childish and I, and, and Taylor talks about, I kind of like, like it's a narrative of courage. Like then I had the courage to like yeah. stand up to my, you know, my family and, and I had the courage to see that this was a, a fairy tale that was providing me with comfort. And, and now I have the strength to face that, like there's nothing after death and right. Um, yeah. And so I think that, that, I think there's real truth to that because I've had those conversations with people. To be honest, a lot of people I know, um, you know, who, who have left the faith, that's the story that they, they tell me. And, and um, it, it can sometimes feel a little condescending where, you know, the implication is that I'm, I, somehow my belief is is relying on this kind of like, you know, it's this fairy tale that I'm yeah. only, I only believe because it provides some kind of comfort or, you know, um, yeah. So, so yeah. To, to see that again as... Um, as it's not unique to them, but it's been, it's, if it's a script, it has to be constructed, right? There's been, uh, yeah. And, and Dawkins is, is the perfect example of that, right? Like, yeah, just kind of, um, looking at this as if it's this completely, I don't know, as if we're all a bunch of bumpkins. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and that idea, I mean, it would be interesting because I've, you know, people will talk about sort of deconversion stories, you know, yeah. walking away from the faith. But I, you know, I wonder, and, and maybe folks would talk about it as in the way that Taylor does is that you are converting to something else. So it's, it's not just, I think, again, there's that enlightenment kind of way of framing it that, you know, I just sort of stripped that away and sort of walked bare into the stark sunlight of, of reality, yeah. uh, walking away from the faith. Um, yeah. but it oftentimes, I think, again, it fails to see that that is, 
that that I mean, in the way that he frames it, you know, there are all kinds of different reasons that pull us to that. And part of it is that we have, um, you know, different sort of models or heroes that we look up to. Right. I mean, I think we kind of recognize, like I think about that as a kid, you hear stories of, uh, you know, the saints or martyrs or, you know, courageous missionaries. It's like, oh, here are people who, you know, totally live out their faith and who, like, live it to the complete degree. And I think in a, in a similar way, when you have people um, sort of, again, putting forth the narrative that it, it's not just that people sort of evaluated the rational arguments and, and decided that Christian faith wasn't true. It's that they see something about this kind of notion of a, of a courageous person stepping out, will it, being willing to say, yeah, maybe there's, you know, I, maybe there is nothing else, but I'm okay with that. I can, I can have the ability to, to live with that. And, and, and part of that, you know, he talks about this idea of the buffered self yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that I think it's kind of like well, this why? Could be a whole series. I yeah, I know. I'm like, we should just. I'm like, oh, we haven't touched. On we haven't this. even touched yeah. on any yeah. any of that. And so, uh, yeah. So I mean, what yeah. what does he mean? So explain that a little bit because I do think, um, if you can, or we. I mean, this is like a huge book that we've yeah. read over the course of the last few months. But to me, there's he he says you know there's this draw to this this buffered self uh, that maybe strikes a chord in some of us. Yeah. Yeah. Boy. I mean, I, 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 I'm not trying to, like, dodge the question, but it just, like, opens up this whole yeah. idea, right? Um, so, I mean, partly... We'll say, save that for the next... Yeah. Have, have a sequel here yeah. to, to this discussion. Yeah. I mean, it, right, it's partly about the, the notion, again, 500 years ago, that people saw spiritual forces as, as very real, right? Yeah. Um, and they saw it as part of their daily lives. Um, so, he, he calls that the poorest self, right? Yeah. Um, open to influence open, by all kinds open of... Open to spiritual influence. And the buffered self, again, kind of were completely autonomous, you know, um, and, and, you know, because of that... Um, we're free, right? Um, I mean, there's a lot more we can go into. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, 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 so I, I'm partly dodging the question. We can, we can. Yeah. Later, <laughs> yeah. But I think it's related to this. I was going to make this point, which is, and I'd love to hear your take on this, right? So, as Christians, we read this, and and it's very easy for us to be like, oh, like, so you know, to to use it to kind of like critique, yeah, um, the kind of secularism or secular, and to say, oh, yeah, it's just a construction. But as you point out, um, he actually calls this an accomplishment. Yeah. Um, and and one of the things I really appreciate about this book is he's not shy about kind of saying he's, a, he's Catholic and he's not shy about saying this appeals to me or that appeals to me, but he's also fairly like descriptive or, yeah. he can, you know, and, and I, I appreciate that. So that even he, as he's saying, look, we're entering into this world of secularity. I'm not sure at the end of the day he thinks that's a bad thing. Yeah, you know, um, and so, so in other words, I don't think he wants to go back to five hundred years ago either. You yeah, know? Um, and and I think what he's trying to do is give a really honest account of the trade-offs. Here's what we lose in a secular area. So maybe we lose some of the, the that feeling of security or 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 you know uh, of even like unity within our culture. Like you know, I mean, there are different things that we lose. Um, but he seems to be also saying, like, you know, like, some of this is good, right? Yeah. Like, um, it's not bad uh, uh, to kind of, like, be faced with some of these more difficult questions to wrestle with them. I'm kind of oversimplifying, but, um, yeah, there are points where, where I was really interested where he just has, this, like, almost, like, throwaway line, and he's kind of like, of course, though, this was good, you know? Yeah. Like, um, kind of just recognizing that uh, a lot of us wouldn't want to go back 
um, to a time where where maybe like you know we uh, I guess maybe it's just becoming aware right of like okay here are different ways of thinking about the world and that's actually it's good for us to, to be aware of those and to wrestle and, and you know we don't want to live in a state of ignorance either right? yeah. Um, yeah 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 that's a great point that this is not a um, it, it, yeah it, it's his way of engaging it is uh, so measured and helpful that it's not a it's not like this narrative of decline right. like how do we get where we were from 500 years ago when everything was great and perfect and uh, now we're just in this horrible place it really is trying to like you said understand partly just understand how this happened yeah. Uh, yeah. and to be able to I mean again what I appreciate so much about it is it helps you understand your own culture yeah. better I think yeah. and, and so it's very easy Maybe in some ways it's much easier to look at a culture not your own right. and sort of understand this is how that culture is developed. These are the values it has. These are, you know, but from within a culture, it just seems natural. Like it just seems natural that people think this right. way. It's, right. Of course, people operate in this way. Uh, and so by giving this account, it, it helps you again to understand what are the positives, what are the negatives. And I, and I think he would say too that, that you can't, he's very Hegelian in this way that this the, the the secular age that we live in is the product of the christian faith yeah. that, that, that that this is it is an extension of in some ways it's a rejection of some things right. but it's also a perpetuation of other things and so to understand i mean that that's why it's so interesting you know having um you know conversations with students in my uh worldview class this semester where they're like, oh man, these these people who I work with, who I inter in interact with, engage with, like we overlap on so many things. Mm -hmm. Like there are so many things that we hold uh, similarly, but there are these there's key theological differences, or you yeah. know these yeah. these complexities and these nuances. And so it's like, yeah, this is this is part of what does in some ways almost make it difficult because we do hold a lot of the same values. It's not a you know it, it's it's not a you know, contrast of two completely different ends of the spectrum. It's a, yeah, it's a in some spectrum. ways, it's, it's a it's a spectrum, and yeah. it's a it's a sort of intra. It still is kind of an intra-family, yeah, if you want to put it that way, uh, discussion or or debate. Yeah. And so, I think that that really kind of makes it, um, yeah, makes it makes it more complicated, uh, and than than it could be. Um. Well, there's a lot to talk about here. We could, we could keep going. Yeah, I feel, I feel like this should be, maybe this can be a reoccurring, uh, every couple episodes we'll come back and just try to unpack this because I think, um, yeah, for me it's been a great read. Uh, so much in there that, again, helps me understand yeah. our own life and culture, gives yeah. me a lens to view that. Well, and I, I think for me, to be honest, like re reading it, as we talked about, was was enriching, but I, I have, I've appreciated like uh, the conversation. So this is one conversation, but we've we've had several over the summer, usually yeah. over beers. Yes, and, that's right. Uh, and those have been really just uh, satisfying conversations. Yeah. Always, so if, if those of you listening at home, if you're going to do this, I'm going to recommend grab two or three people to do it with, um, it, it will be a joy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. The art of conversation and just continuing yeah. bearing bearing fruit from the reading. So, yeah. yeah, that's good. Well, Andrew, thanks again for being with us today. Yeah, uh, thank you. We appreciate it. It's, yeah. it's been good, and we'll look forward to having you on. In a, maybe we'll dig into this more in the future. Maybe we'll engage some other topics, art, music.
Star Wars. Who knows Star what? Wars, who yeah. knows where we go? All right. All right. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah.